So, Will. Yes? The movie we're discussing today is in that proud tradition of film that gets immediately shunted to home release because they have no confidence in its ability to perform in theaters. Hey, this movie kinda came out. It made $13,000 at the box office. (laughs) Oh my god, that's more than I would have thought. Anyway, I have to ask, what's your favorite straight-to-home video? I was gonna say straight-to-VHS, but I assume some must have come out on DVD. Oh, there are a lot of straight-to-DVD movies, especially, like, TV spinoffs and Disney sequels. Uh, I mean, Disney sequels is the sweet spot of straight-to-home video, I feel. And actually, one of mine falls into that category, which is mostly one that I just really loved when I was a child. I was really into Winnie the Pooh. Okay. And in, I think, 1997, late 90s, they put out a direct-to-video Pooh film. It's like, you know, 60 minutes, maybe called Pooh's Grand Adventure, colon, The Search for Christopher Robin. I've seen that. It was very good. Yeah, it's pretty darn good. It has, like, five original songs, all of which are pretty solid. What's funny is I was really excited when Disney Plus came out because I would get to check it out again since I only owned it on VHS. And I talked it up to the people I was watching it with about, like, yeah, and it's got, like, a fun turn at the end that might be more obvious to adults, which is the movie is about... Christopher Robin goes for his first day of school and Pooh thinks he has been kidnapped by like a monster and gets all the animals to go on a journey to Skull Rock to find him. And it's because Owl reads the word school in a note and thinks that it's Skull. And I thought that this was a turn. Like at the end of the movie, you find out that it was school. But on rewatch as an adult, I discovered that they do spell out the word school. So it is only a turn if you are illiterate, which tells me about when I last watched the movie. Wow, you must have been young. I'm surprised you remember it. I mean, I here's the thing. I watched it a bunch after that, but after that, I also just, like, knew what the end point was. So I probably didn't process they're telling you right away. Right. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. I also watched the one where um they try to find the other Tiggers. That is the Tigger movie, which I have not seen. That one got a theatrical release. Okay. But my favorite straight-to-home video film is the most expensive ever made, and it kind of reminds me- Or at least, if this is what I think it is, it was the most expensive made at the time it was made. Or at the time. And it reminds me a lot of this one, because there is a celebrity that is much too famous to be in this movie, whose eyes kind of scream, help me, throughout all of it. It is, of course, Theodore Rex. An incredible film in which Wolpe Goldberg plays a cyborg cop who is partnered with one of the dinosaurs from the TV show Dinosaurs. Who have been brought back to life by a eccentric billionaire and they are now treated as second class citizens, essentially. Right. Yes. And I don't remember- So this is the first ever dinosaur detective, but Whoopi Goldberg is prejudiced against him because she's racist against dinosaurs. Right. Because one of them killed her partner, I think? Something Something like that. that. I kind of was thinking it would be fun to do an episode where we do Theodore Rex without rewatching it and just talk about what we remember of the romance. The problem is the romance with Sally Rex is the part that I remember the least of that movie. I think that the plot is the thing I remember the least because I could not tell you what the villain's plan was. It involved an arc, like Noah style. Right. And like... And blowing a lot of people up. Yeah. I think I'm mixing up some plot elements with Theodore Rex with Threat Level Midnight from The Office. Yeah, I think there's that element in it too. There's definitely a space arc 
and he's sending animals to space. Right. There's a weird thing where he is like the billionaire scientist who brought dinosaurs back, but is also like something of a messianic figure for the dinosaurs. Right. It's strange. Would recommend if you anyway, haven't seen it. Spoiler, you only find out that Whoopi Goldberg is a cyborg when she gets shot and should die. And the movie's like, JK, she's a cyborg. Right. And that apparently, cyborgs, same status as humans. It's just dinosaurs that get treated like shit. The best part of Theodore Rex is that our lead, Teddy Rex, has sneakers that are, you know, he's a dinosaur with a three-toed foot. And rather than have one shoe that covers all of his toes, he has, like, a heel of Converse's and then three Converse's come off each of them, one for each big toe. Which, when you think about it, would take a long time to lace up. Yeah, that you have to tie six shoes every day. No, thank you. No, thank you. But to go back to another movie straight to VHS with a celebrity much too famous, today we will be discussing 1988's Puss in Boots. Welcome to Mark, We Love how many times do I have to tell you this movie came out? Mm, I don't really buy it. <laughs> Welcome to Neither We Love the Love. Neither did most Americans. <laughs> uh, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm Ginger. This is the third anniversary episode of an investigative podcast committed to examining one of the least important questions of our day. Namely, does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable or even people? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one scene flirtation or if it's just kind of there. We'll dig in. And this week we are addressing our listeners on Twitter who have insisted for years that there actually is a Puss in Boots movie. It turns out that we were both right. There was not a theatrically released Puss in Boots film based on the character from the Shrek universe. It simply does not exist. It never happened. But there was a Puss in Boots movie, and we found it, and we watched it. And we loved it. I can only assume. It's deeply weird. I will say the first half in particular is deeply weird. And then it just becomes a pretty standard fairy tale movie. Right, which is kind of when I lose interest. Like in the yeah. first half, I'm just overjoyed at how bewildering this movie is. And then in the second half, I'm just like, I don't care about them being in love with each other. No, but I was throughout the movie pretty impressed with how clever that cat is. <laughs> he is a clever cat. He's a clever cat. Mark, what is your knowledge of the character Puss in Boots? So, apparently, I knew that there was a cat with boots who had a little sword and was voiced by Antonio Banderas, and I assume was from Spain. So, I actually did think it was a Spanish fairy tale at first, but that just shows how deeply the (laughs) Shrek version of this character has permeated my brain. Uh, Turns out that it is originally an Italian story and then was written by Charles Perrault in his famous collection of fairy tales. And this is a fairly close adaptation of the story. Apparently. Yeah, I pretty much knew the Shrek character. I knew that that was more based on Banderas' portrayal of Zorro. But beyond that, I was just like, a French fairy tale? And I looked it up after watching this completely bizarre movie. And according to what I read on Wikipedia... This movie is basically the plot of the fairy tale. Yeah, I think the only major change is in the fairy tale, everyone else knows, like, it is just a cat in boots. It does not become a human when it puts the boots on. Which is what I was really hoping would happen. I wanted Christopher Walken to voice a cat in boots. Me too. But clearly the budget of this movie would not allow for it because it has some of the worst slash best effects I've ever seen in a film. Okay. 
So it's time to talk about the budgeting of this movie. Again, this is Puss in Boots 1988, starring Christopher Walken as Puss. And Sean Connery's son as Kurt, Kurt, Curtis, Curtis, what's his name? I do not know the character's name and I refuse to look it up. Yeah, the main character. Yeah, Jason Connery plays the little boy, whose age could be 14 or 30. And everyone else in the movie does not have a Wikipedia page, and I could not find what else they were in. Okay, so here's the deal. Puss in Boots 1988 is part of the Canon Movie Tales series from the Canon Film Group. So we're going to go on a little journey through Canon to get to what this is all going on. Okay. So Canon got its start in the 1960s, making independent movies, among them English language remakes of Swedish sexploitation films. Incredible. But then in the 1970s, they kind of fell into hard times, lost a ton of money. And in 1979, with the help of an investment from a bank that later went under because of massive fraud, the Canon Group sold to Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus, who were two Israeli film producers who wanted to use it to step into the Hollywood filmmaking scene. So they spend most of the 80s making B-films, things like the Death Wish sequels, some Chuck Norris movies a lot of ninja movies that all tracks for the 1980s low budget studio yeah post rambo movies but they also made like some other comedies most notably they made break in and break in 2 electric boogaloo <laughs> that's probably their most lasting legacy i'd say then that and then like a lot of schlocky production houses of the 20th century they also did U.S. distribution of a lot of foreign films. It's a thing we talked about with The Graduate, where, like, the guy who produced The Graduate mostly made junk movies and distributed foreign films. So Canon did some of that same stuff. Pretty good model. Yeah. And, you know, I'm glad that those junk movies were able to finance U.S. distribution of, like, foreign art. Right. And also, sometimes you got some domestic art, such as the film Puss in Boots, 1988 version. All right, here's the thing. In the 1980s, at Cannes in 1983 or 1984, they announced Disney has gotten out of the business of making fairy tales, because this is before The Little Mermaid, so we are going to step in and fill that gap. And they announced they were going to make 16 feature-length fairy tale adaptations for $1.5 million each. They ultimately made nine of them, and Puss in Boots was the second to last. Was the budget of this movie a million and a half dollars? I have not been able to find any specific budget for this, but I have found multiple sources that the plan for each of them was one and a half million. One of the ways that they saved money on this was that they used the same sets for a lot of these movies. Well, I mean, yeah. So like if you watch the canon movie tales in sequence, you're going to see that same castle a lot. I mean, why do you need another castle, honestly? They also shot them in Israel, primarily using Israeli actors, and they would get, like, one or two people from the U.S. and the U.K. to be stars to draw people's attention to them. So in this movie, you've got Christopher Walken and Sean Connery's son, and pretty much the rest of the cast is Israeli. That kind of explains why the whole movie, I was like, what are these accents? Because sometimes it almost sounded German. I think one of the guards was from Brooklyn. Sean Connery's character, I couldn't even place his accent. Again, his name is Jason Connery. Sean Connery is not in this movie. <laughs> Sorry, Jason Connery. It was strange. He is that forgettable. Yeah, I mean, he is a bland, blank sheet of paper type character. But yes, the accents are all over the place. I did text you while I was watching it that I would offer you $1,000 to tell me where or when it was set. I mean, it's clear that they are aiming for early 1700s France based off of the wigs and fops and outfits. But I think that what became the Marquis' land is 
clearly like England in the 1400s. Right. The land of the great ogre is not the same place as the king's estates. Yeah. But I mean, I think it's like clearly they're going for Sun King style aesthetics in the palace. Mark, we just brought up the great ogre. And I think in watching this, I discovered where the Mandela effect imagination that a Antonio Banderas Puss in Boots film started from, which is that Shrek is in this movie. Yeah, except for the fact that they apparently didn't want to pay for green makeup and just used a green light to try and make him seem green. The villain of this movie is an ogre who is green, has spikes coming out of his head, and is wearing Shrek's wardrobe. Right, and... I, the first time he shows up on screen, I was like, is this what Shrek is based off of in aesthetics? Like, they should sue Jeffrey Katzenberg. Or even just the writer of the Shrek book, because I mean, the Shrek book author probably may have actually took that in mind. It is genuinely possible. Oh, so weird. One of the problems with this movie, again, at the beginning, it's exciting how nonsensical it is, and later it gets more dull as it settles in. And part of it is that this movie has absolutely no dramatic tension. No, and I mean, it's like the fairy tale itself seems to have fairly little dramatic tension because the Puss in Boots is just too good at his job. But like we're introduced to the ogre at the beginning when he's yelling and turning into animals and roaring and then turning back into the ogre and yelling and screaming, I can become whatever I like. Not clear why we care. He doesn't seem to do much besides yell. But the movie just like forgets about him for a long time. He's never all that menacing. He's just loud. Yeah, he. we never see him attack anyone or anything. It's just in the beginning, some people kind of sing a song about you have to hide from the ogre or else he might yell at you and then turn into a bear but just and then roar stay away from you it was odd this is a weird movie i wish there was more ogre i also wish that christopher walken didn't forget he was playing a cat for most of the movie hey he periodically remembers and like wipes his hand against his cheek like it's a paw yeah and then like i assume him playing with his mustache is supposed to be him playing with his whiskers but that happens like three times in this movie he also hisses at people occasionally i just wish there was more cat like it's puss in boots there should have been more cat Honestly, the biggest problem with the Puss character is not Walken's performance. It's that Puss is very good at his job and is great at conning people and helping out his boss, Jason Connery. But he never tells Jason Connery what the plan is, and it's not clear why he doesn't tell him. Like, he often has opportunities to explain and just refuses to. Yeah, I think that's really the problem, is that you kind of just have to trust the cat for no reason when he could just explain what's happening. And that also robs our ostensible lead of any autonomy because he never has any clue what's going on and also never makes any choices. And the one scene where he actually is like in trouble, he just does this strange voice breaking and that is it in terms of acting. Let's just say he's bad in this movie. Oh yeah, he's bad. No good. Everyone is bad in this movie, except for maybe Christopher Walken and kind of the princess. She's not that good. (laughs) She's not that good, but you don't have to be that good to stand out in this movie. That is true. Uh, I will say the aunt, I think she's like the king's sister who is helping to- I thought she was like a nurse or something. I think she says aunt at one point. Uh, Okay. She's 
incredible because I have absolutely no idea what choices she's making at any moment. Well, the biggest thing to know about her is that she's allergic to cats, but also clearly wants to bang Christopher Walken. And also, apparently, she believes the only way to be a lady is to have absolutely no emotion and constantly tells the princess that she is a failure and the worst princess. She'll never amount to anything and is just crying while she's doing it because she's like, I'm a failure for having raised you like this. Right. It takes the, like, women shouldn't speak out baseline that you might expect and goes so much further to you should never express any emotion at all but there are also interesting things in the list of faults like when clara is listing princess vera's faults one of the things she says is that she never chews her food which feels like something you would say either to a very small child or a boa constrictor no she never chews her food with her mouth closed Oh, that's less interesting than what I heard. Yeah, it is less interesting, but it also makes a bit more sense. I'm on the Wikipedia page for this, which is very minuscule. It basically has a cast list and a list of songs because this movie is a musical. That was a surprise. Its plot summary is, in this film, Puss transforms from cat to man, and when he puts his boots on, he transforms back again. But that's not how it is. It's when he takes his boots off that he transforms back again. It has a one-sentence plot description (laughs) that is wrong. (laughs) And it is grammatically incorrect because it lacks a comma. Yes. This movie has original songs mostly written by Michael Abbott and Anne Pearson Crosswell, who also do not have Wikipedia pages. Yeah, we can tell you very little about this movie. But again, I mean, it was basically a direct-to-video film at the end of a series that doesn't really exist anymore. The most interesting thing I found out about the canon movie tales is that their adaptation of Stiltskin was the only ever lead role of Billy Barty, who played the peeping Tom murderous baby from Gold Diggers of 1933. I was trying to remember, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page, and I was trying to remember where he is from, and now I, you know, that kind of tracks. The female lead of that was played by Amy Irving, who at the time was married to Steven Spielberg. I can't believe that Helen Hunt was in the first one. Yeah, well, she wasn't famous yet. I know, but just like reading some of the names, you have such decently known people. No one's super famous. Diana Rigg plays the evil stepmother queen in Snow White. I would watch that. That sounds interesting. I know. I just want to see it for her performance. Isabella Rossellini is in Red Riding Hood. Yep. Like... All of these cast lists make me kind of want to watch these movies. It kind of feels like they probably got most of that one and a half million dollar budget, the famous people. Right. And I guess a vacation to Israel. And how did they, like, what castle is that? Oh my god. Craig T. Nelson is also in the Red Riding Hood one. Yeah, that one's got a cast. Who's the big, there's no one that's credited as the big bad wolf. That's bizarre. I'm assuming they just got an actual wolf. I wonder if this one is also streaming for free. Anyway. Well, if you if you watch it, you can let us know. Yeah. <laughs> Back to Puss in Boots. All right. Like we said, this is a big anniversary episode for us, so we wanted to acknowledge our listeners who claim that a Puss in Boots movie exists by acknowledging that it kind of does. We can now say, hashtag I've seen Puss in Boots, but it doesn't mean what it originally meant. No. But if you can, watch like the first half of this movie. So you can also yeah. say, I've seen Puss in Boots. Hashtag. Hashtag, I've seen Puss in Boots. Because it is bizarre. It's a weird movie. We should probably start talking about it. My favorite part comes very towards the beginning, and I'm excited to talk about it for sure. All right. Every week, we focus primarily on the romantic plotline of a movie, because that's all we care about. I suspect this week we will run far afield. 
in the fields of the great ogre. <laughs> because Princess Vera doesn't show up for like 30 minutes of a 90-minute movie. Yeah. So, just some background. We've got Shrek. He rules over a good chunk of the countryside. What's weird about Shrek is that he is framed as like somebody who goes out and eats people, but mostly seems to run his land like a traditional feudal lord. Yeah, he doesn't seem to do much except try and rule by the fear that he can transform into animals. Right, he just like collects tribute, sits in a castle, has a bunch of horses. Also, the king doesn't realize that this massive chunk of his land is ruled by an ogre. Well, presumably, he is still sending tribute as he is supposed to. Oh my god. It seems like the ogre is reasonably participating in a feudal system. Yeah, because you can't, like, the actual nobles were not treating the serfs any better than this ogre was. Right. But that does not come into play for another hour plus of this movie. Right, we're introduced to the ogre yelling, and then we don't deal with him for a long time. Instead, we go to an old man on his deathbed who gives one of his sons ownership of a mill another son, ownership of a quarry, and our third son... A donkey. Oh, yeah. The second son gets a donkey. It's not that much better. He's a very poor oh, okay. miller. Still, better the donkey than the cat. Yeah, you can actually do something with a donkey. Here, I have a lot of questions about this bequeathment. Yeah. Because the cat, like, immediately starts turning into Christopher Walken. Was he doing it previously? My assumption going into this would be that the cat turned into a person or whatever with magic boots. But he's just a cat who can always turn into Christopher Walken, but not for very long unless he has boots. And this makes more sense if he were to stay a cat, because a cat can't do anything unless it has boots on, obviously. But a cat that can transform into a person can get its own boots also. Right. Like, why doesn't he just get his own boots? But it's also like, has he been doing this for a long time? Does the father know he can turn into a person? Did the father want his little boy to have Puss in Boots to protect him? Like, what is happening here? Also, a cat, presumably, maximum, it's probably like six years old. But Christopher Walken, much older. So does it reflect the, does he age at a much faster pace because he's a cat? I would what have is to the logic so. here? Besides, there is none. I mean, there are other problems, too, because Christopher Walken always talks about how he knows what to do in different circumstances, because what cats do is sit and watch. But that wouldn't explain how he is, like, well-versed in the manners of gentility, because he did not have the opportunity to watch noblemen when he was hanging around the mill. Maybe he was a palace cat that ran away and got adopted recently by the miller. I'm just saying, I have a lot of questions about this cat. I also have a lot of questions as to why his older brother doesn't allow his younger brother to help him run the mill. Yeah, why do they have to leave? Considering four of them were running it before, this guy is not married and has no children, so he's just running the mill on his own now after having a lot of help. But they have to go off and seek their own fortune, the younger brothers, and we never hear from his older brothers again, and I hope that the donkey guy does not die because he just owns a donkey. There was a reference when they go through the ogre's land early on where the little boy is like, well, I can never see my brothers again without passing through the ogre's country. And he talks about that like he's not going to do it. So maybe when the ogre is gone at the end of the movie, he can see them again. Well, I should hope so because he now has massive amounts of money, land, wealth, and horses. That's true. That he just cons out of an ogre who I assume must have killed the previous lord. Definitely. So the little boy then starts wandering around with Puss in Boots. He manages to get him some boots by working for money, which is a thing I was surprised to see. Yeah, he sells some sticks 
to an old woman who gives him three coins. And apparently the boots only cost two for a really nice pair of boots. So moving those sticks seems to have been much harder of a job than I realized to command that kind of salary. Yeah, I gotta start moving sticks. Yeah, he makes a good, like, they're nice boots. They are nice boots. And luckily enough for them, when they're staying in a barn, there just happens to be a much nicer hat than the one the little boy has that Puss in Boots can just take. I was wondering where that hat came from. He just pulls it off a nail in the barn. That hat would be the most expensive thing the farmer owns. Yeah, it is a very nice hat. But this is my favorite scene because the permanent transformation of Puss in Boots into the man is some of the best. It's just flickering back and forth between stills. Yeah, it's just a picture, but it's not even flickering back and forth because it's just a still of Christopher Walken's face with the cat's face superimposed on it back and forth multiple times. And this movie exists in a post-Star Wars, post-back-to-the-future world, and it looks like it was made with kid pics. This movie looks dreadful. Like, like we said, it's a musical. It is hard to imagine a movie that shot musical numbers less interestingly. Like, it is almost always static shots of people not moving. And then barely singing. No one in this movie is a good singer, either. Like, when there's the singing at the court about, like, who is the Marquis of Carabas? It's like, what if we just crowded everyone onto a stage, had them do nothing, and didn't move the camera? Yeah, and then they don't even sing. They just go, who is this Marquis? Who is this Marquis? And why don't we know his name? I, it's so good. <laughs> I also love when he sings a lullaby to <laughs> the, the master. Christopher Walken sings a lullaby about being a cat. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. So many of these songs also use, like, specifically homophones or even just the same word to do rhymes. These are horribly written songs. They are always the simplest rhymes. Usually one-syllable words. And then they just use the same same word. If you've ever wanted to know how many rhymes you can find with cat, watch the film Puss in Boots, in which Academy Award winner Christopher Walken hits every one of them. Oh my god. But then they f- move into an abandoned cabin that I guess they just stole. This is like the cabin from the Evil Dead. It's insane. It, well, it's it much smaller. Shackle. <laughs> it is one room with no bed in it, and... The guy just sleeps on the floor. Oh, but we forgot the part where the cat traps a bird using the classic put bird seed in a bag move. And then the ogre attacks them because I forgot about the fact that he does show up again briefly. Right, but it's not an issue. Puss in Boots gets rid of him. At this point, Puss in Boots is like, I'm going to get us in a good situation. And so what Puss in Boots does is he keeps catching like nice birds and nice rabbits and taking them to the king and saying, these are gifts from my lord, the Marquis of Carabas, to the king. And they are not, I mean, this is like a king. Gifts to him are probably usually much more expensive than two rabbits. And at one point when he brings in four chickens, everyone flips out like he is giving him the greatest gift ever. Right, and like maybe they're very good pheasants, but come on, you wouldn't know until you ate them. I know, but this is... The moment where we first see the clear romantic lead because she's the only one not wearing a powdered wig. But it's also worth noting that, like, this is the plan that Puss goes on. And, like, it's not the worst plan to, like, insinuate himself into the court. But he just refuses to tell the little boy what the plan is. Why? Why won't he just say what's going- I mean, that is also classic fairy tale nonsense. Like, a lot of fairy tales just have the assistant demand blind loyalty instead of explaining what's going on. 
Yeah, but it's dumb. Yeah, but usually the moral is, at the end, they question their judgment, investigate it, and are shown what is happening, and then it goes away. Like, it reminds me of The Crane Wife, which is a Japanese story, where Mm -hmm. a man rescues a crane, and then the next day a woman moves in and is making him money. She's like, you just can never find out how it's happening. And I'm also like, why you you could have just told him you're a crane. I think he probably would have accepted it based on the fact that you were making him money. Yeah. But also, it's a beautiful story. It is a very good story. So, anyway, this let's call it point one. Yeah. The court is abuzz with rumors of the Marquis of Carabas. Who is the Marquis of Carabas? Who is he? And why don't we know the name? Marquis, Marquis, every young king of the who no one knows Especially, anything uh, about. Princess Vera, played by Carmela Marner. Who's already decided she is in love with him. Right. Knowing nothing about him. We do know she's not into any of the other suitors that have been coming for her, who we will meet later. The suitors are so good. Unbelievable. But she's very excited to meet the Marquis. She's like, oh my gosh, I bet he's handsome. I bet he would marry me. And Clara is like, no, you're a bad girl. This is some of the most brutal honesty of an aunt just telling her niece, like, all of the things wrong with her so many times throughout the movie. Just very specifically, this is exactly what's wrong with you, and you won't change. no one will marry you. And I'm crying about it. So that's kind of where things are. And Walk-In eventually is like, all right, I'm happy to have my lord meet your majesty. I'll bring him the next day, which is point two. Apparently, Jason Connery did not provide his own singing. That is based off of wildly unsurprising. Yeah. But point two, the cat somehow, again, not telling the boy, tells him to take a bath in the river, which makes sense because he's dirty. But then steals his clothes. We're going to meet the king, doesn't say why, and says, you should take a bath before meeting the king. Right. He doesn't tell him that he has managed to pretend that this boy is a marquee, which... Also, Marquis is a very high-ranking noble. The king should know all of the Marquis. Yeah, he's a bad king. Yeah. He's a dumb, bad king. He's just playing with toys every time we see him. So the cat is like, take a bath. He gets in the water naked, and Puss in Boots just steals his clothes without telling him why. Because the king's retinue is coming down the road, and Puss in Boots is like, my master has been robbed and beaten, and they took all of his clothes. Again, a good idea. Right, but there's no reason that the little boy can't be in on it. I know. That's the biggest problem with this movie. All of the cat's ideas are good and pan out, but he just refuses to explain them to anyone. How old do we think the little boy is? I think he's probably supposed to be like 21. Okay. Like I said, the character feels like he could be 13 or 30. Or anywhere in between. A young and dumb 21. (laughs) Yeah. With a terrible ponytail. Oh, God, because it's like a clip-on. It's not his real hair, because his real hair ends. Or it's a rat tail that's very long. It's especially bad when he is bathing and it gets wet, and it just looks like a damp rag. Oh, it's so bad. Um, So he's naked in the river, and the king rolls by, and then he sends his men to rescue him because he's drowning, when he's clearly just standing in the water. Been so 
But somehow he gets it into his head that, like, these guys who came, came into the river are attacking him, and he tries to fight them off. But the king doesn't find this suspicious at all. Nope. And eventually, the king orders one of the guards to give him his clothes and brings him to the castle. They get in the carriage. Claire is really excited to see him. She's like, oh, he's so handsome, when in fact he looks terrible. Yeah. For some reason, Vera falls in love with this man, and I don't understand at all. I think she's just trying to seize on any man who is not one of the three princes. Which also makes sense. But we get the only moment of voiceover where we get her thoughts of like, is this love at first sight that I am feeling? Again, all of the songs in this are bad, but she has a voiceover song in the carriage about like, I'm having love at first sight. And then he also joins in and it's a voiceover duet as they sit there in silence. (laughs) Oh, God. But this brings us to point three where the fake Marquis is invited to the suitor's ball. Let's acknowledge in here that the king sends his like royal tailor to get the fake marquis some new clothes. And the tailor comes in, measures his neck, and then leaves. I mean, I guess he's just a very good tailor. Sizes him up mentally right away. It's just weird. That's like one of the least necessary things to measure. I don't get it at all. I guess you can tuck a shirt in, but you have to have your cravat just right. But as you said, this takes us to the ball. My favorite scene. (laughs) So Princess Vera is going to be married to somebody, and it will probably be determined at the ball, which is attended by the Marquis of Carabas, and also by three princes, the Prince of Patience, the Prince of Size, and the Prince of Rapture. Who enter the room, bow, and leave. That's it. They do nothing except look absurd and be named the Prince of Patience, the Prince of Size, and the Prince of Rapture. Weird names for parts of your kingdom. Yep. But whatever, I guess. But then they dance. Well, everyone dances except for the little boy who's embarrassed because he only knows country dances, not court dances. (sighs) And so he's stumbling along when the cat goes over and tells the band to play country dances because it's all the rage abroad. It's all the rage abroad, Mark. (laughs) It's all the rage abroad. The band is just like, yes, of course we will play country dances. And the little boy starts dancing and it works out great for him. And everyone's like, what's going on? And somebody's like, I heard it's all the rage abroad. And well, I guess everyone there at court happened to know country dances too. Yeah, because they all somehow know the same choreographed country dances, even though they just found out it's all the rage abroad. So they're all dancing. Clara's dancing in a terrible dress. And they're chanting, it's all the rage abroad, basically the whole time. This is like Can't Buy Me Love, where everyone starts copying the African anteater dance. But it's different because they're making up their own dances. They're not copying him. That's true. All right, Clara's dress. It's no good. It's blue. It's got like stray pink flowers like pinned to its sleeves. She's got huge lace coming off the forearms and she has like an ugly crown of pink flowers too. It's bad. It's a really ugly dress. But then they have their moment at the ball where they escape onto the balcony. The only people not wearing powdered wigs, so they stand out a lot. And by being noisy, they wake up the pigeon doves. And Clara goes, how do you know of such things? And the little boy goes on to explain all the things that he is familiar with, like birds and seasons. And she's like, wow, I wish I knew about those things. Because she, I guess, has never known anything about seasons. It's the list of, like, the entire natural world. And she's like, 
I'm just a city girl. You're a country boy. Nothing could be as improbable as the two of us falling in love. Is this where he admits to being the son of a miller? Yeah, but she doesn't really believe him. Yeah. He's like, I'm a miller's son. And she's like, sure, whatever. I wish I knew about seasons. But then I guess the next thing is they kind of just continue standing and talking, but this time by a river. Well, they agree to meet the next day by the river. So then, like, the next morning, he oversleeps and is late. And he has to rush out to meet her by the river. This is point number four. They have a nice date by the river. And he says again, I am a miller's son. And she's like, that's cool. I'll be a miller's son's wife. I simply can't believe you're real. I have to pinch myself till I turn blue. I can't believe the way I feel. I want to tell the world that I love you. Right, because she's in love. She doesn't want to be a nice lady. She will just be the Miller's wife. And she wants to learn what seasons are. Right, she's got to know what seasons are. Oh my and she's God. like, look, just keep lying about being a marquee until my dad gives permission for us to marry. And, that and then who cares? Because clearly divorce isn't allowed. The king has been really into the marquee since before he first arrived. And after meeting him, the king is still blindly supportive of the marquee. But the aunt is suspicious and kind of planting seeds of doubt throughout the whole time. Rightfully so. Right. But it doesn't seem like those seeds of doubt are really taking root until suddenly the king is just uniformly suspicious of the marquee out of nowhere. It makes no sense. While they're on their date, Puss in Boots is chatting up the staff at the castle about the wonders and the riches that the Marquis has. And he is describing the ogre's castle. He's like, yeah, he's got a hundred Arabian horses and chest full of jewels and a thousand rooms. And so when they get back from their date, the king is like, you can only get married if it turns out you actually have all these things I've heard about. The only smart move the king ever makes. But again, it's weird because he is suddenly suspicious. And like when they're leaving to go visit Castle Carabas, I guess... Puss in Boots is like, I'll ride ahead and get a banquet going. And the king's like, sure, yeah, a banquet. Like, I believe you could do that. It's just such an immediate turn without so real weird. explanation. Do you think the king knows what seasons are? No. The king doesn't even know all of the land of his kingdom. That is true. So the cat rides ahead. And this is interesting because he tells everyone that the ogre has been named the Marquis of Carabas and they can't call him the ogre anymore. Which is a good idea because then yeah. when the king rides past, he always stops when he sees people and is like, whose lands are these? And because they're scared, they go, oh, it's the Marquis of Carabas. Right. And then he even tells the ogre that he's been made a Marquis. And this is where the problem gets resolved within two minutes. Off screen. Off screen. <laughs> because the ogre is, as we've been told at the beginning of the movie, he can turn into anything. He's turning into bears. He's turning into elephants. And Puss in Boots is like, well, yeah, I mean, you're a big guy. You can turn into big animals. But I just don't think it would be possible for you to turn into something small like a mouse. And the ogre's like, how dare you? And turns into a mouse. And then Puss in Boots turns into a cat and eats him. Yeah. Off screen. That's what cats do. But then this brings us to point five, where the cat gets the castle ready for a banquet within two minutes. I would not expect you to become anything small, like, like, a mouse. Why not? I could become what I want! Um, and then the king arrives, and all of the things- And his retinue counts the thousand rooms in a minute. Right, so all of the things that he's- the cat had- explained about the castle are true so then the king says you can get married i guess 
And the movie ends and Puss in Boots just has left. Yeah, he's just gone. He left his boots behind. But not before singing a reprise of A Happy Cat. But like, he leaves the boots, so now he also can't turn into Christopher Walken. So he's back to just being a cat wandering around? Like, what is his deal? What does he want? Well, he... Who is this cat? And why don't we know his name? He got... His name is Puss. That is what the father named the cat. I was told last December that cats have three names. (laughs) Yeah, we only get one of his names. But also they take the nine lives thing very literally in this movie. Where it's like, we're gonna die, but that's okay because you have nine lives. So that's why you're not worried. Why not take it literally? Everything else is literal. I mean, that's true. Oh boy. What a weird movie. What a weird movie. After watching all this movie, do you find the romance of Puss in Boots believable? No. Um, the little boy is boring. And, and not that cute. Not cute. Uh, he and Vera don't know each other. I'm sure there are better Miller's sons that she could marry. Yeah, she could marry one with a mill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When Puss in Boots leaves, I guess the little boy now has the castle. But, like, in terms of things he can prove ownership of, he has nothing. Well, it all belongs to the Marquis of Carabas, and I assume the servants would be happy that the ogre's gone, so they'll just buy into it. I'm just saying, this little boy doesn't even have a cat by the end of the movie. (laughs) He loses the only connection to his father. Every week, we rate the believability of a romance on a 10-point scale. Where would you rate Puss in Boots, 1988? Um, Like a two? Yeah, maybe a three. They do sing a song about now they believe in love at first sight. They believe it love at first sight every time they look at each other. It's only first sight the first time you look at each other. Yeah. <sighs> like, they don't even understand counting, let alone seasons. Yeah, I think a two is fair. So, Mark. Yes. Do you think that Vera or... Oh, apparently, according to the questions that I wrote, the little boy's <laughs> name is Corin. <laughs> yes, that normal name we all know. Do you believe that Vera or Corin is dateable? No, they're both dumb. I mean, she's kind of... She is much prettier than he is, but also... Low bar. She chews with her mouth open, which is gross. Yeah, that's very gross. I do not want to hang out with somebody who's doing that. And then Corrin is the most bland movie lead I've seen in a long time. And he has that terrible ponytail. Oh, it's so bad. Do you think that they would stay together? I mean, those two boring kids deserve each other. And I mean that as an insult. (laughs) Also, it's not like divorce was very common at this time. Whenever it is. Yeah. I think they will stay together. I wonder what the actual name of that castle is, because now it's Carabas, I guess. One of my favorite things about this movie is all of the various court people have titles. Like, there's a woman that is credited as Prime Minister's Wife. And I'm like, really? Yeah. The credits have, like, someone is playing the treasurer, and someone is playing the treasurer's wife. How do you know? I don't know. Uh... I love when Puss in Boots is bringing the, like, gifts to the king, and people are always, like, talking or singing, like, what is in his bag? Or, can you see what he's brought? But he always brings them in cages. You can see what's in the cage. I know. It's so good. Like, I wonder what he has brought. It's like, it's clearly a rabbit. It's a rabbit. Oh, if you had to pick one person in this movie to date, who would it be? I don't know, man. We got a cat. We got an ogre. We, we, We could date Shrek. We could date a woman who doesn't know what seasons are, a boring little boy. Maybe I'll date the brother who gets the mill. That's what I was thinking. He's got a solid business. Or the woman who paid him three florins to move sticks, because clearly she's got enough to throw around. Yeah, uh, I'm going to do the mill brother. I don't know. I'm going to go with the boot saleswoman. 
because she has no lines besides two florins, so she didn't offend me in any way like every other character did. Now, Mark, many of the films we've discussed on this podcast have been adapted into stage musicals. This movie's already a musical. Should it be staged? Absolutely not. This movie should be forgotten. Yeah, the songs are bad. Yeah, they're so bad. The thing is, I think it's clear this movie was forgotten, and we have brought it back. Yes. I mean, I think we have (laughs) given this movie more attention than it has ever gotten in the past 32 years. Yeah. Shout out to our past and future guest, Colin, for tipping us off to its existence. Oh my god. I love it. Now, Mark. Yes. This is our third birthday as a podcast. Happy birthday, Will. And happy birthday, Mark. On our birthdays, we usually play a game. Mm -hmm. The first year, I made you guess the meaning of old hashtags on the show. Last year, you had to summarize the plots of spinoffs we pitched. And I gotta say, we have been kind of lacking on hashtags lately, which is what I was going to do. So I am committing to more hashtags in year four. And I will be expressing that commitment with the hashtag hashtags in year four. So again, that's hashtag hashtags in year four to commit to using more hashtags in year four of this podcast. Okay. But I need a game for you to play. So I thought something we could do would be look at the top 10 rom-coms at the box office of all time and see if you can guess them. Because we sometimes have fun with some of these box office guessing games. Okay. So again, we're just looking for the top 10 at the domestic box office romantic comedies. I can give you hints from 10 to 1 or you could just try firing off at random. Um, Pretty Woman. Pretty Woman is third. It made $178 million. Um, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Is number one. Yep. It is the most successful romantic comedy with a $60 million lead over the number two. Is Sleepless in Seattle on there? Sleepless in Seattle is 13. Okay. Is Hitch on there? Hitch is number four. Okay. Um, so you've got one, three, and four. Have we covered it? Have we covered what? Number two, sorry. Uh, we have not covered number two. We have covered a movie by that director. Okay. Can you give me a decade? It is from the year 2000. Hmm. The director is a woman. We covered her first movie, which was two years before this. Is the director Penny Marshall? It is not. Okay. She hasn't really done any rom-coms, has she? I mean, she did big, which is a weird yeah. medium thing. Uh, we I... gotta do big. Yeah. I don't know. Give me... Another hint. All right. It stars a beloved leading lady and a known psychopath. Hmm. Doesn't really narrow down anything in Hollywood. Like a like a really famous psychopath. Like a dude who is like semi-canceled and should be like fully arrested. Is it What Women Want? It is What Women Want starring Helen Hunt and Mel Gibson. Ugh. Yeah. I don't know how he's still around. It's truly unbelievable. So number one, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Number two, What Women Want. Number three, Pretty Women. Number four, Hitch. Number five. Uh, number five is directed by an Academy Award winner. Decade? Or even just year? Um, this one came out in 1998. Hmm. Is My Best Friend's Wedding on the list? My Best Friend's Wedding is... Sorry, I'm using the uh, all-time romantic comedy list on the numbers... It made two hundred and ninety nine point three million. That's global. Global. Um, we're using the domestic list, and on the domestic list, it's not on here for some reason, but it would come in around the same place as Sleep Sleepless in Seattle, so like twelve or thirteen. Okay. Um. Hmm. Nineteen ninety eight. So again, nineteen ninety eight, directed by an Academy director. Award winner. We've been talking a lot about Shrek in this episode. 
its star was in the Shrek movies. Antonio Banderas? <laughs> no. Eddie Murphy? No. Oh, Cameron Diaz? Is it There's Something About Mary? It is There's Something About Mary, directed by Academy Award winner Peter Farrelly. Oh, God. Um, I don't know if I'm going to get any more. I did get the top uh, there are five still, with hints. Yeah, there are still two that we have covered. Number okay. six, I know you have seen. It's the most recent one on the list. It's from 2018. Hmm. Hmm. It is the only one on the list besides Hitch that stars people of color. Hmm. Hmm. Well, it's not a Netflix one, I'm assuming, because they don't have box office. Movie I've seen. It's an adaptation of a novel. Mm. Shark Tale. <laughs> is that on the list? <laughs> it is not Shark Tale. Um, oh, God. Who directed it? John Chu. Oh, my God. Oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. Crazy Rich Asians. Crazy Rich Asians. That's right. Whose star went on to be a dead person in Last Christmas. Um, hmm. Number seven we've covered. It's a touchstone movie. It's kind of like the last big rom-com so, set in Alaska. Um, The Proposal. The Proposal about threatening your employees into marrying you. Yeah. Not good business practices in that movie. No. Number eight is probably my favorite movie on the list, which stars uh, my favorite kind of dicey male star. Is it Maid of Honor, your favorite movie? It is not Maid of Honor, which, of course, stars my girlfriend, Michelle Monaghan. No, this movie is from 1996. It was a Best Picture nominee. It stars one of your favorite actors who we have gone out of our way to cover on multiple occasions. Oh, um, who have we gone out of our way to cover? 1996. Yeah, like, what if we did a special episode on something? Oh, 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 uh, Bridget Jones' Diary. It's not Bridget Jones, but you have the actor, right? Okay. Because, uh, of course, she was, <laughs> she played <laughs> the boss in What If? The show did a special episode on. Um, oh, is it, uh, Jerry Maguire? It's Jerry Maguire, because I love Tom Cruise. I don't really see that as, like, a rom-com. I think I guess. it is. Yeah, I think of the sports stuff. Sure. But that's not what it's really about, no. primarily. Yeah. All right, we got two last ones. Number nine is probably the hardest one for you to get. It is the reteaming of Julia Roberts and Richard Gere, who, of course, co-starred in the number three movie, Pretty Woman. Oh, I didn't know they did another movie together. It's got a famous poster of Julia Roberts in a wedding dress and sneakers. Oh, Runaway Bride. Yeah. And then number 10 is a movie that we talked about a lot on this show about a year ago and that I have pushed for us to cover. Hmm. Who's in it? At the very least, it's by a fil- it's by a filmmaker that I think we should cover. Okay. We talked about it when we talked about Katherine Heigl. Oh, is it uh the breakup? No. P.S. I not love the you. Breakup. Um, I don't know. It's an Apatow movie. Oh, knocked up. Knocked up. It's an interesting list. It's an interesting list. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Some better than others. Definitely. I think that is it for our third anniversary. We did it. Hooray! Next week, we'll be discussing another, I'd probably say 
more cult classic than anything about a conversion therapy camp called But I'm a Cheerleader, starring Natasha Leone. I have not seen it, but I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I haven't seen it either. But until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Reviews on Apple Podcasts in particular help new people to find the show. All right, last question. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from Puss in Boots? The movie we were God, talking I about today. I forgot we were talking about Puss in Boots, and it was <laughs> glorious to not be thinking about it. Um, hmm. I don't know. Pretend to drown while naked? That does work pretty well. <laughs> I think what I learned is that if you think really intently at somebody, hmm. they will realize that you're in love with them. Ooh, that's good. You don't need to say anything. Just, just think it. Really think a song at them. With really simple rhymes. Yep. All right, until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! Bye.